I want to begin by talking about uh, what's happening with the censor in terms of uh, news and changing facts and those kind of things. And uh, we made, were made aware of it this week because we published in the last couple of weeks something in American Faith, and we noticed that things started changing and being retracted that we knew that we saw. So I want to just begin with this uh, headline. It was from the National Institute of Health. Pretty reputable group, right? And here was the headline, face masks are ineffective against COVID. Right, that's what they said. Okay, now most of us know that that's probably true. In the article, they gave the analogy that a face mask based on the size particle would be like a chain link fence keeping mosquitoes out. All right, so it's a really interesting article, and, I, and I'm not condemning or, or trying to make you feel bad if you wear a face mask. I'm just saying that the National Institute of Health said it was ineffective, okay? And then they gave this chart. Let me just put one of them up here. This is uh, table one, and it talks about some different areas like um, physiological, psychological, and health consequences from wearing a mask. And you kind of go through these things, and you look and go, I don't like any of those health consequences, right? Um, and yet they find that they're related to it. So then, now that's article that, notice the date. Dates are very important. April 16th. So it's a pretty new article, correct? Yes. Right, let's go on to April 22. This is Forbes magazine. Did the so-called Stanford NIH study really show face masks are ineffective against COVID? So now they're questioning it, but then the conclusion when you read the article is this, that the NIH never actually published the study. And yet, I have a screenshot of the study that was actually published. So then, National Institute of Health, and look at the date, April 29th, and look at the headlines here. Retracted, face mask in the COVID-19 era, a health hypothesis. Now, do you see what happened here? What happened is, the National Institute of Health said, we found ineffective. Forbes questioned it. National Institute of Health retracted it. So it's really hard to know what to believe in news, isn't it? It's hard to really get your source and say, well, this is what's going on. And I think that's what causes a confusion in all of us. It's just like, if it's really science and it's science, if it's not science and it's just some other thing, then tell us that and we can live with that one. Well, I want to take you back to 1948 to a guy by the name of Frank Wisner. Now, Frank Wisner was appointed the director of the official uh, Office of Special Projects. Soon afterwards, it was renamed the Office of Policy Coordination. This became the espionage and counterintelligence branch of the CIA. Wisner was told to create an organization that concentrated, concentrated, on, concentrated on the propaganda and economic warfare. Later that year, uh, Wisner was established Mockingbird, a program to influence domestic American media. So remember, where is this coming from? This is coming out of the CIA. We have to control media. A lot of us think that the control of media has happened in the last 100 days. The reality is, this goes back much further. It goes back much further. This is the 10th the message in the One World Government series. I think this is gonna be the last one in the One World Government. We'll move on to some other areas. But I didn't realize when I started, I thought there was two or three in this, but now I find out there's much more that we need to look at and talk about. 
But let me just keep going with this. By this time, Operation Mockingbird had a major influence over 25 newspapers. Now remember, that's 1948. And that NYR agencies, including CBS, Time Magazine, New York Times, New York Post, and the Washington Post. So what you have to understand is that when you read, even if you read the newspaper 10 years ago, there was filters being placed on it. And so it's hard to get truth. You know, whoever would thought, think that truth would become a radical position in our world? But it has become a radical position. And why is that? Well, let's take it back not to truth or good reporting. Let's take it back to a foundational truth, and that is absolute truth, which is the word of God. You see, the real question that came in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve was not, you know, do your own thing. It was really, has God really said? That was the first question that Satan asked Eve. Has God said? So what's the issue? Is God truthful? Can we trust God and God's word? Ultimately, everything you're going to face in your Christian life is going to come back to, do you have truth, or is truth just subjective? Is truth just relative, meaning that it, it just applies to you in that situation, but it's not true some other time? So what you have to do, you have to realize, you have, either have to embrace the Bible as being true, or you have to reject it because impurity makes it questionable on all areas. The great uh, Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis, came to the conclusion when he was in this pursuit of God, trying to really disprove God because some of his closest friends there at Oxford were guys that were saying, no, Jesus is true, the Bible is true, and all these things. And so he began this quest to try to disprove the validity of Jesus Christ. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was one of three things. He was either... And what he claimed was, he said, he's either a Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. In other words, he's either exactly who he said he was, he's the Lord of lords and King of kings, he's a liar, so he's deceiving people, right? Or he's out of his mind, he's a lunatic. People say, well, I believe Jesus was a good man, and he questioned that, and he said, Jesus can't be just a good man because a good man wouldn't lie to you. And so when you go back, you have to ask yourself the hard question, do I believe the Bible is the word of God? Not some of it, but all of it. And that really is, becomes the test. That becomes a test when you begin to dig into truth, absolute truth, versus truthful reporting, which is not absolute truth. So let me give you a couple of data points here on one world government. And if you've been here over the course of 10 weeks, you've probably at least been here half of those and you've heard some of those messages. But I wanna show you what I think is happening today in our world. There's a convergence of financial tech, pharma, and military intelligence. This is happening in our day. And these streams are coming together. It's only now that you begin to see the reality of what's coming together in the financial or the tech or the pharma or military intelligence itself. My dad was in military intelligence, and when he, he had the highest clearance in Korea that you could get, when he came back, he was debriefed in about an hour, an hour and a half, best his memory serves. And when, he, when they got done with the debrief, he could only remember one of the secrets he knew in the entire time he was in Korea. He said, I don't know whether they drugged me or they hypnotized me, but I could not recall any of it. Now, if that was happening in the 50s, born identity sounds more real, doesn't it? We should go home and watch it today. My wife says that's the movie I watch too much, but it's I Am Jason Bourne in that movie. Do you know, 
Guys, you know what I'm talking about? That's me. You know, I mean, I don't have to put on like a red suit and be Superman. I can just be Jason Bourne and I am fine. And when she comes in, why are you watching that? She has no idea I'm living out this fantasy. You know, I, I'm running like, you know, like a one-minute mile. I'm doing all the things Jason Bourne does. If you haven't seen Bourne Identity in the, in the series, you need to go home and watch it today, all right? The second data point is this one, global policy coordination being engineered by private central banks. So there is a coordinated effort that happens on the financial sector that we don't really fully understand. We probably suspect it, but we don't really see it or understand it. Um, if we go to the third data point, aggressive worldwide push for a vaccine passport. Now, if it really had to do with health, that's one thing, but if it has to do when, when that becomes merged with our financial data and other things, that's when things become a little bit more dicey, a little bit more difficult. Um, uh, we published an article in American Faith a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, about uh, vaccine passport may be required for travel to Italy and Europe uh, this summer. And so I just thought, well, I'll just email the travel bureau in Italy and just inform them that uh, I'm not coming back. <clears throat> now, let me tell you why that's significant. That's significant because when you voice something, nobody knows how many voices that represents. That could represent your voice. It could re represent 100 voices. could represent 10,000 voices for all they know. And I think what we've done as Americans, we've, we've fallen prey to this idea that somebody smarter than me, better positioned than me, uh, better connected than me, will say something or do something in order to fix a problem. But those days, if they ever existed, are definitely gone. It's now time for you to show up at parent-teacher meetings. It's now time for you to call senators. You say, well, I don't, rep I don't like that senator. That's okay. It doesn't matter. They're still your senator or your congressman, and call them up and say, hey, I, I want you to know where I stand on this, and I'm not alone. And if you start doing that on a regular basis, you would be surprised how effective that can actually be in changing the course of American history. I've, I, I've said it before. I want to say it again, that really the key is not, is not national. It's really local. If you, if you really get, get, a, get a mindset to say, if I, if I can get my local government on track, then it's going to affect, make my life better, but it's also going to affect the broader scheme of things. You know, we're living in a state now that has, has now two, one successful, one soon-to-be-successful recall of a governor. Now, now, let me tell you how that happened. That didn't happen, that didn't happen because a bunch of Republicans got together. They've already demonstrated this is bipartisan, all right? This is bipartisan. Bad leadership is bad leadership. You just can't get around it. And when you, when you take, uh, you know, what was once the fourth largest economy in the world, California, and you drive it into the ground by bad leadership, then everybody knows the difference, now, we see things like on a national level, when our gas goes from you know, $3 a gallon to $4.50 a gallon or whatever it is right now, we see that that's, a, that's on a national level, but it's somewhat related to the taxes in a local level, right, in a statewide level. What I'm trying to say is you can make a difference, and I want you to know that before we go any further. Now, if you think about, like there's a long line here that God, let's just imagine a long line with an arrow on it, and that's God's plan. God has a plan for his world. 
God is gonna work out his plan according to his ideas and his wisdom. But God seems to allow moments where he adjusts his plan or delays his plan in order to accomplish something even greater in the moment. When Abraham prayed and said, God, will you, will you stop your judgment on Sodom if I can find 50 righteous people? He said, yes, I will. And so God, you see, God can be shifted or delayed by the prayers of his people. You see, if prayer doesn't make a difference, then why would we pray? Prayer has to be more than just something therapeutic. Well, I feel better when I pray. Well, that's great. That's good, but if, if prayer doesn't change things, it starts by changing you and it starts by then changing the world around you. And so if it doesn't do that, why did God tell us to pray? Why did he tell us to speak to mountains? Why did he tell us to, to change the course of what's happening in our world by prayer? Why is it the only thing that, that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was how to pray? Because they recognized the power of the Savior was in his prayer life. They didn't say teach us how to do miracles. They said teach us how to pray. Now, prayer doesn't have to be complicated for you. Prayer is talking to God. Have you ever talked to somebody? You just talk to him. When you talk to God, God hears. God responds. And I want you just to, to put that in your, in your mindset. There's a fourth data point I want to give you, and that's the surveillance-driven totalitarian system. Now, what totalitarianism is, it, it's the idea that we're going to control your destiny. And that, that can fall under the, the category of communism. It can fall under the, the, the category of socialism. But it's the idea that you don't have control over your future. And whenever you see that happening, and one of the ways they're doing it right now is surveillance. Uh, in London today, there is uh, one camera for every 50 people that the government monitors. I don't have the stats here in America. It may not be that high, but think about that. Every 50 people have their own camera focused on them at any moment walking down a street. Why is that? Well, we, with safety, right? If we can go back, we can see who's the bad guy. But also, it tells us the movement of the good guy. And you see, you have to understand that there is a global picture that is happening here. Now, what I don't want you to do today is I don't want you to fall back into fear or alarm. Remember, there's always been bad stuff in the world. There's always been wars, rumors of wars. Those things have been going on since man decided he didn't like the other man, right? And so those things are always true. What I want you to do is fall back into truth. That's where we began with truth. What does God say? What does God give us warnings about? What does God give us ability for? So let's go back to the foundation of our faith and let's look at Jesus Christ and what he said in Matthew chapter seven. He said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus said, if you want to be wise, if you want to have stability in your life, listen to what I say and do those things. That means if I'm going to, if I'm going to hear them, I have to read, right? I have to know, what did Jesus say? What does the Bible say? And then I have to do the things he says. And now look what it says. Who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. So what are the winds? What are the floods? What is the rain? What are all those things that are happening there? Well, that's the environment you find yourself living in. So he's not talking about, he's using an analogy here. He's not talking about simply, you know, natural disasters here. He's talking about what is it that gets you off course? 
What is it slows your progress? What is confuses you in life? He said, when you're wise in the word of God, those things are, while they may bother you, they're not going to destroy you. You see, and we wanna live above all the complications of life, right? Because life is complicated and difficult at times. But Jesus said it doesn't have to be that way. He went on to say this in Matthew 7, 26 and 27, but everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them. Now you see the contrast? Here's what happens when you live by truth. Here's what's gonna happen when you don't live by truth. It says, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Who built his house on sand. When we were, when the kids were little, we would go down to the beach in Florida, and, and uh, that, we didn't come out this way, we went the other way, because we were living on the east side of this country. And we went down to Florida, and the, and the boys would get out there, and they would build this, this, what they thought was a massive, giant sandcastle. It had the moat, it had everything, and it was going to withstand the waves. That lasted about four seconds. And when I saw that, I thought, isn't it interesting because they're, they're doing child's play. They're doing what children love to do. But yet, they don't recognize the power of the wave that's coming up against what they're doing. You see, you're foolish if you don't recognize the power of the wave that is coming up against you. That's why you have to be founded on truth and on the word of God. It says, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. A lot of people say, well, you know, this seems so sudden. How did, I, how did I get in this mess so quickly? Nothing is sudden. If you look at your life and look back over, just take the last five years and look at your life and say, how intentional have I been in founding my life on the word of God? How intentional have I been on truth? How intentional have I been on following the things of God? Because you see, it, it, it accumulates over time, day by day, day by day, day by day. But the same thing is true when I, my life spins out of control. A little, I adjust here, I compromise here, I adjust here, I adjust here, and then finally you find yourself bankrupt spiritually and you go, how did I get in this mess? It seems so sudden. Remember, success in your spiritual life is not sudden and neither is failure. It's over time. If you will commit yourself today and say, hey, you know, I, don't, I, I, think I, I think I'm that guy. I think I'm the guy in the sand. Okay, then rebuild your life, build it on the rock, and begin to every day commit yourself to getting closer and closer to God and build your house upon a rock. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Some people think a cross is your burden. Yeah, my husband's my cross. <laughs> my wife's my cross. No, that's just your relationship. That has nothing to do with your cross. The cross is something you die on. What needs to die in your life today? What needs to die? What doesn't doesn't really deserve to be a part of your life? Is it a thought? Is it an action? Is it an attitude? What is it? Just let it die. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he asks this question, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? He puts it out there where we really can put our hand around it, doesn't he? He says, look, if you say, I got everything in life that I want, but I don't have my soul, is that really worth it? Wouldn't it be better to have my soul and not have all this other stuff? 
You see, there's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with you know, being blessed. There's nothing wrong with, with having money versus not having money. It, it, it all comes back to the attitude about it. And if you have the right attitude, then your, your zip code and your bank account don't dictate how you live your life for God. You just see yourself as, wow, God has blessed me, how can I bless others? And I become a revenue stream, I become of not just money, but of goodness and love and power and influence in my life. And I just say, I wanna influence my world in any way, whatever, what's in your hand, what can you do, what do you have for your future? Let me tell you something what God says about the future, the revelation of the future. God wants us to see and to know. And a lot of times we read the Bible and go, I don't know what this means. Have you ever had those moments? I have, right? God, I don't know what's going on here. I remember I, I led this guy to Christ. He was a Marine and at the time was working as a, he just got out of the Marines and was working as a bottler at Budweiser. And he called me up and he said, I got some questions, I gotta come over. He said, first of all, I've been reading this book, Job, and I don't see any jobs in here at all. That's a good question. It's a good question, you know. And, and so, you know, just not knowing what it says. And then he, re, he said, I'm reading Ezekiel, and, and I don't know what's going on. There's like spinning wheels and there's stuff. He said, do you think this guy was on crazy mushrooms or what was going on here? You know, he was reading it from a perspective of someone that just didn't know, and he was curious. Stay curious about the Word of God. Read the word of God, get into it. God will give you insight, God will show you what's going on. But see, one of the things the Bible does is it takes you from the perspective of, let's say, the prophet, and he projects out into the future. This is what the future may look like. And so let's look at some of what God says. Amos chapter three, verse seven. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So what, do I, what is he telling me here? He says, God has some th- secret things, but he only reveals those through the prophets. So what do we do? We read the word of God. He's talking about the biblical prophets here. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But those things which are revealed, now you see there, God reveals some things. Some things God doesn't reveal. But the things he does reveal belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. So why does, give you, why does God give you insight? So that you can do the word of God in your life. You can practice it in your daily life. How about Daniel chapter two and verse 28? There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Matthew 13, 11. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So not everybody is going to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. So when we, when we lay this foundation, now I want to take you on a journey uh, of who is the Antichrist. Have you ever wondered that? Will we know him? Is he alive today? All, all through history, every despotic leader has been identified as the Antichrist. Gorbachev had this unfortunate birthmark on his head, and they said, that's the mark of the beast. We know it. There were books written, uh, movies made. Gorbachev is the Antichrist. Of course, the, the usual suspects are like Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and some of these guys. These guys certainly fit the bill, but they were not him. Does the Bible give us any insight into who he will be? Well, today, I'm going to reveal to you who might be the Antichrist. Are you ready for this? All right, let's get on the journey. The identity of the coming Antichrist. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7. 
It says the beast, now if you know your Bible, the beast is a reference to the Antichrist. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. So one thing we learn about the beast or the Antichrist, it appears that he just ascends out of the bottomless pit. Not like he's born to some unfortunate mother. Like, great, what's your son doing? Well, he's the Antichrist now. You know, bummer, <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of like, have you ever known somebody that named their child Judas? Bad name, bad, Adolf, bad name. I mean, there are just some bad names in this world, right? Because of association. Well, let's go to Revelation 17, eight. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend. Now, keep in mind that I've highlighted words on here for a reason, okay? Actually, they're not highlighted, they're highlighted in my notes, okay. So, <laughs> but they're really good in my notes, okay. Okay, that you saw was and is not. So this Antichrist was, past tense, is not now, something happened, but will, future tense, will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that, now look, it's gonna repeat it in a little different way, that was and is not and yet is. So we have a past tense, we have a present tense, and we have a future tense. So who is the Antichrist? Here's a question I'm gonna ask and try to answer today. Could it be Judas Iscariot? Now let me take you on a journey, and you can draw your own conclusions as we go through this study. Only Judas and Antichrist are called the son of perdition in Scripture. That alone doesn't build a case for it, but we're gonna go ahead and show you those scriptures. John chapter 17, verse 12. While, while I was with them in the world, I kept, you, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I have kept. Now he's talking about the disciples. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So you see, Jesus knew that what was going on with Judas when he recruited him to be a part of the disciples. It was all according to the plan of God, that God was gonna, God knew the heart of man, knew what man was going to do. He recruited him, and, it, and in John 17, before he's crucified, he says, all have been kept except the son of perdition. Now keep that term in mind. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Who's that? That's the Antichrist. So you see in John 17, he talks about Judas being the son of perdition. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, he says the Antichrist is a son of perdition. All right, let's keep moving. Only Judas and the Antichrist are said to be possessed by Satan himself. Now when you read the Bible and you read about stories of people that are demon-possessed, Okay, you read those stories? Okay, that's a very different word that's used when it talks about those people in Scripture that are identified as being, un being possessed versus one who is possessed by Satan himself. Only two people in Scripture, and that's Judas and the Antichrist. John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? So he didn't say you're a bad guy. Off course, deceived, messed up. He went right to the heart of it and he said, no, there's, there's a character in you, there's a quality about you that's not good, it's evil. 
The Bible says that only Judas and Antichrist go to their own place. Acts chapter one, verse 25. Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. This is a place apart from where the dead go. Revelation chapter 11, seven. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Bottomless pit was reserved for Satan and his angels, not for man. The Antichrist was and is not and yet is. All right, let's go to Revelation 17, eight. Read the whole section there. The beast that you saw was and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So let's kind of take that apart. He was on the earth, is not now on the earth, and he will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Fascinating, isn't it? Everybody's gonna go home and go, I don't know what he said today, but it, <laughs> it scared the pejeebies out of me, right? <laughs> All right, Revelation chapter 11, verse seven. He's called the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. So what we've done here, I, I have about 20 data points that talk about this parallel here. Uh, we're only gonna, this is uh, kind of the essence of what I wanted to share with you today. So you say, well, how does this work exactly? Well, let's go back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve fell, God comes to Adam and to Eve and he talks about the serpent, that is Satan's role in that fall. And he says something. He says, from the seed of woman will come one who will crush the head of Satan. Now what's interesting about that scripture is that women don't have seed. Men do. So Genesis 3.15 is a reference to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But then it says, and from the seed of Satan, you hear that? will come one who will bruise the heel of the coming Messiah. So we know a bruised heel, while painful, is, is, not, uh, is not a mortal wound, but the crushing of the head is a mortal wound. So what's Genesis telling us? It's telling us there's a seed of woman, but there's also a seed of Satan coming. I believe that's Judas Iscariot. I believe that's why we don't want, we always wonder this question like, is he alive today? He doesn't have to be. He can literally ascend out of the bottomless pit and manifest himself in our world just like that. Well, that would all be pretty sad way to end if I didn't take you to the next step. Amen? All right? This was, this was like the statement, you know, that parents love to give their kids. It's gonna hurt me a lot more than it hurts you. No, it didn't, Dad. You enjoyed every minute of that whipping you gave me, right? I mean, if you're a parent and you're honest, you go, you know, did you ever really enjoy whipping your kids? Yeah, I, it was getting even time, right? We, there were problems in that household. We had to straighten some things out. And uh, when I was little, my dad would hold me upside down by my feet and take the belt, and he'd whip me that way, and I couldn't get away. I don't know. There was just something kind of primitive about it I enjoyed, you know? Like, my dad can actually hold me upside down. And I was like 17. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the returning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't think any of us have to be convinced that the world is messed up, right? But, you know, God still wants us to enjoy our world. God wants to change our world. God wants, to have us an, wants us to be an influence in our world. 
and we can make a difference. Do you realize that every, every Ivy League college that exists was started by a Christian? And you know what we did? We gave it up. We took our hand off the plow. Great hospitals founded by Christians, started by Christians. Red Cross started by Christians. You've never heard of a compassion organization started by atheists. Where do I get my compassion? Why would I have any compassion? Because if I believe in evolution, I'm just, I'm just a part of an evolutionary cycle. I was just a one-cell amoeba that somehow pulled myself out of the primeval sludge. My, my fins fell off and I started teaching at a university. You see, there is, no, there is no mercy that comes out of someone who literally does not understand that God is the creator, God, that man is made in the image of God. So what happens is, if you're, if you're kind of looking at the timeline of Genesis through Revelation, you see this constant pull from God to try to get us back on track. And you see this constant push from the enemy to try to get us off track. Our goal as believers is to stay on track and help as many other people get on track as we possibly can. That is our mission. That is our goal. That is why we exist on planet Earth. We know that the world is winding down. We know, we're just from science, the second law of thermodynamics says that things go from order to disorder. And our world is going from order to disorder. That doesn't mean you stop trying to rebuild the blocks. Amen? That doesn't mean you don't make a difference in your family. You don't raise it. You raise up your children to love God and to love others and to make it to be generous and kind and loving to everyone around them. We just keep doing that. We keep pouring in the right stuff constantly into our children and our children's children. I don't know when the Lord's coming back. It could be. It could be next month. It could be a thousand years from today. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change my mission. My mission is still exactly the same. Love God. Love others. Love yourself. But the good news is, he is coming back. Let's go to Titus chapter two and verse 13. It says, looking for the blessed hope. Think about that. The blessed hope. Jesus is called the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a great message that is. How about Revelation one, verses seven and eight? Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him. And he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If God is the beginning of your life, he's also the end of your life. Hey, I got good news. The Lord said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I change not. Guess what? If he loved you yesterday, he loves you today. Isn't that good news? If he took care of you yesterday, even though you might feel forsaken today, he'll take care of you today. Sometimes the loneliness you feel or the distance you feel is only God drawing you in closer. He says, you know you're unhappy over there. Why don't you come into my arms and let me love you? In John chapter 14, verses one through three, it's, it's a scripture we constantly hear when we talk about you know, our future in heaven, but there's another piece of it I want you to, to identify. It says, let not your heart be troubled. Has your heart ever been troubled with life? What am I gonna do? Got a financial problem, got a physical problem, got a job problem, got a relationship problem, whatever. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, see it there? 
the return. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there may you be also. You see, in that promise, is not just a promise of heaven, it's a promise of the return of Christ. That where I am, there may you be also. I will come again and receive you to myself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 says this, now may the God of peace, do you know he's a God of peace? You ever just kind of been all stirred up and worked up and tense about stuff? Then just step into the God of peace. It's a peace that passes all understanding. That's why Paul wrote to Philippians. He said, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever so things are worthy of praise, think on these things. See, our thinking determines our peace or lack of peace. Think on these things, and the God of peace will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The God of peace is the guardian of your heart and your mind. Look what it says. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means to set you apart completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that you have a body, and you have a spirit, and you have a soul, and God says all three are important. Your physical realm, your mental, emotional realm, and your spiritual realm are all important to me. And guess what? When I come back, I want it all preserved. You're gonna be blameless. You know why you're blameless at the coming of Christ? Because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You're not blameless because you don't do anything wrong. Anybody, anybody fall into that category? I've never done anything wrong. Well, you need to start a church for one. But you see, God wants you to be blameless. And what do we do? We have to just accept our position in Christ. How do I do that? I say, God, I know me. But God, you know me too. And you love me. And in spite of me, you love me. In spite of me, you forgave me. In spite of me, you died on the cross. You were buried. You rose from the dead to give me eternal life. And for that, I give you, I give you praise. I give you glory. I give you honor. Amen. I ask you to, um, why don't you just stand with me right now and just bow your heads and close your eyes and I wanna just talk to you a little bit about what does it mean to follow Christ? If you've never received Christ, if you've never been born into the kingdom of God, then you can pray a prayer like this one. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. You can pray that right where you stand, right where you said. I believe that you were buried on the, in the tomb and on the third day you rose from the dead to give me eternal life. And by faith, Lord Jesus, I receive you now as Savior and Lord. If that was your prayer, I got good news for you. God did exactly what God said he would do. All who call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. Did you call on his name? If you did, just thank him in your own words. Just say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, God, for loving me the way that you do. Amen and amen. If you're a Christian and you say, well, I, I'm thinking I'm a little bit spinning out of control. I've kind of lost my first love. Then come back. Just come back. He, he's, he's the father with arms always open. Come back. Let me love you. Let me bring you in. 
Let me wash your feet. Let me put a, a coat on your back. Let me put a ring on your, on your finger and shoes on your feet because you're the prodigal who's come home. That's always good news. Amen? Amen.